Welcome to the Future of Tourism podcast. I'm David Peacock. Stop owning your own content. Young leaders are stepping up. Bring everyone to the table. And imagine their world anew. In the early part of the last decade, some tourism destination organizations were shifting to a more engaged, more locally relevant, and more dispersed model of destination marketing and management. One of the challenges faced by the leaders of these organizations was how to shift the allocation of resources from a pool predominantly based in the purchase and consumption of media to one that allowed speculative expenditures in non-traditional partnerships and initiatives. Dr. Annie Rummel is one of those innovator outliers. For more than three decades in Michigan, she's been blazing new paths for tourism destinations to become more relevant, more local, and more integrated with their communities. We sit down today to talk about 30 years of fascinating and difficult development and how it is you actually get something done when literally it isn't on your chart of accounts. Good morning, Annie. We met, now I don't span your, our 30 year history together. We met a, a little more than a decade, almost a decade ago at uh, an event in in New Orleans, social media and tourism, SOMETI, and you were a keynote and I was a keynote. It's really obvious to me back then that you had sort of stepped outside the norm. You were doing things that DMOs weren't doing. Can I ask you this? We both were in quasi regional situations. I was running a regional tourism organization in Canada. You were running a Great Lakes Bays Visitor and Convention Bureau alignment. That's a number of pro- a number of destinations or properties in there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, we what 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 was occurring at that time. Uh, we had just come through the recession of two thousand eight two thousand and nine, at where I was asked to regionalize uh, three counties within the state of Michigan, and actually I looked to you in Ontario as one of my case uh, studies as I was researching how regionalization would work and be beneficial, you were on uh, my target to view and and listen to. So I, I did learn from you as well, David. Well, wow, that's interesting because shortly after that conference, we were paying close attention to what you're doing. So it became this reciprocal sort of uh, feed on each other's work. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I do remember that conference really well. I remember um, one of the other people speaking was the CEO of Dublin, Ohio. Do you remember this? Yes. Yes, I and do. So he had started something. He came to Dublin. He said, hey, most Irish town in all of America, especially on St. Patty's Day. Very, very bright man. Um, and he said, it's about three years, two years in. He said, I think we should do some research. And they, they said, I don't think we're quite as Irish as we think. And so he came up with a little incentive program to animate around Irishness. And he put some money on the table with operators and vendors and said, what you can do to make Dublin more Irish, 365 and on St. Patty's Day, which could be supported by the destination organization, which we thought was just the coolest thing ever. That blew up It's it, at the regional tourism office. It's now called the Destination Animation Program. It gets funding every single year and every one of sort of seven major destinations in that region. Um, uh, stakeholders, businesses, um, attractions, accommodators, culinary apply for ways to animate the destination. But yeah, those are those are great little conferences. But we learned we learned a lot talking to you too. And we were just at the beginning of distributed marketing. We were starting to break down our 
you know, our central centralized marketing model into distributed. And you were there talking the birth of digital, really, in some sense, right? I was because I had a young lady um, out of the university here, Saginaw Valley State University. She was a graduate in the journalism program and had a grandmother who actually had an Apple computer at that time, which was uh, when she was in school. That was early adoption of that technology. But she was already. I I can tell you when that was 1982. I can tell you personally. (laughs) Yeah, so um, she was already advanced in her thinking and was pulling me along. Um, I don't know if you recall Blair, but she and I. I do indeed. And um, like what you and I have discussed so far, we can all learn important lessons from if we watch and are observant of one another, but also if we aren't afraid to break break those barriers down between generations and respect one another. Uh, she really taught me a lot. So that's interesting. Where, where's Blair nowadays? Uh, she actually still works with our corporation. She started her own business. Uh, it's called Brandscape. And she does all of my branding work as well as uh, blogs. Yeah, talk, talk about a 30 under 30 success. Okay, that's the other one, I was there with Zach Gribble, who was our director of digital and he was presenting dashboards that we that he had built for operators in our market that had changed their their whole world but i'll tell you where he is he is now the executive director of uh stratford destination alliance after all that so very good to see both of them go on to those things early work on a distributed model of engagement in tourism we both felt at the time it wasn't just a little different it was odd right reaching out to unusual suspects asking people into a room where you knew that the sentiment wasn't necessarily always going to be glowing. Talk to me about the early days at, at Great Lake Bay's VCB as you're starting to make that shift. Because I, I think one of the things going on right now in tourism is we're stuck on making this shift to engagement. We've got these high-level engagement assessment tools and what's our valued community, but how do you actually engage? Where does it start? Well, I think you have to take the responsibility upon yourself. Don't ask permission. <laughs> Uh, when you want to move forward with a project, just just do it. And if you're doing it out of respect and really trying to understand the desires and the needs of the people that you're working for, um, I, I think you'll be welcomed in, in that effort. One of the um, interesting things that came out of Destination's Next Advocacy Summit that both you and I just attended was that there still is not engagement with the understanding with the local residents about what kind of tourism they want, what kind they don't want, where they want tourism, and where they don't want tourism. And without that foundational knowledge, I would not be able to do my job effectively. And so way back in uh, the 1980s, when I started working uh, for the Convention and Visitors Bureau in Frankenmuth, for example, uh, one of the very first things, it's a small town. And I understood very clearly that if I'm going to be successful in that small community, um, that uh, I needed to understand what the residents' desires uh, were and make sure that I matched my programming uh, and advertising, marketing, um, as well as destination development to not only meet those needs, but hopefully achieve, uh, exceed them. How about, how, about, how about adding to that list, anticipate them? What was yes. your, doctorate? your doctorate was on accessibility and tourism, was it not? 
Yes, I went to Michigan State University and got my doctorate degree with my dissertation focused on disabled travelers um, and how to how that small financial investments could um, provide great return uh, for a community in the long run and built the solutions into the Frankenmuth 2000 master plan, which was deployed in 2005. So I'm going to hazard a guess and say, you know, outside of very big destinations that have massive involvement in infrastructure, and I think of my friend Ron Price says they're building stadiums in, in, in Texas, but Outside of that, though, for smaller and medium-sized market destinations, capital investments weren't only eschewed all the way from sort of 2000 to 2015. They were actually off the books in a lot of cases. Most tourism organizations were fundamentally structured so that you couldn't have capital investments. And that's a throwback to sort of a, a, a quick and easy way to control budgets, right, and have money not go to enriching people. You've spent a lot of work working on the budget side of this too. And, and I think of your work, especially on, on MATs and, and BIA taxes and, and TBIBs. Tell me a little bit about what you've seen over the last 10 years. I don't think I've seen anybody uh, as focused sitting with their you know head down, reading the stuff, working with our, our legal partners to figure that out. Tell me what you see on the front funding front for destinations. Um yeah, on on in our case, um, we still don't have a funding source uh, in the state of Michigan to do product development. Although it's a mandate that we're required to as a convention and visitors bureau by our state reporting, um, so I'm working on um, establishing a statewide um, tourism investment district uh, to help fund our Pure Michigan campaign but also um, have written language in there that would enable convention and visitors bureaus throughout the state to uh, provide referendums for various uh, development projects and gain the funding um, within the geographic benefit proximity of the attraction that's being proposed. And it's a, it would be a voluntary opt-in program. Um, and then of course the payment structure would have a sunset clause in it. So, um, that's being uh, worked on right now legislatively, um, but I would encourage your listeners not to wait for someone to help them and not to wait for a perfect funding mechanism to be in place, because if it's the right idea, the money will follow. And leverage what you do have. Um, be very critically um, conscious of what tools are available that you may never have considered. So, for example, in the city of Saginaw, we had a city size, uh, a, a, an entire city block building that was built in the 1970s, and it was a terrible eyesore. And right next to it was a seven-story hotel that had gone out of business. The, the city center, it was, it was just like a, a festering sore. Um, preventing us from really making progress. It was right across from our entertainment facility, the Dow Event Center. Um, what I did is I thought, okay, we got to get rid of this somehow. And I went to the police and they said, oh, that would be fantastic if you could get rid of that. I also went to the neighborhoods around there, spoke to the residents and said, you know, how would you feel if we could get um, this asset off our books? And they all agreed, and many wrote letters in support of the effort. And then I went to the land bank authority and said, um, you know, will you go in with me on this? And 
talked to my board then. I, I said, okay, the land bank authority is willing to loan us at 0% interest, $1.2 million. That was the estimated cost of demolition and remedi the remediation, remediation of the asbestos within the facility. And I, I just showed them data and information on the crime that was occurring out of that structure. And then what would occur if we took this action? Then I also got a commitment from the county of Saginaw and our Saginaw Future, our EDO, that said, if you get this demolished, we'll work on uh, transforming it into an outdoor um, concert venue. And so it came full circle and it's reality. Wow. And it was not a happy living, but it was good. Any full stop. Wow. That's great work. Those are, those are the stories we, we love to tell. Because can I ask you, back to the original loan fund. So it, it runs up a million dollar tab, tearing it down. Was there mechanisms for it to sort of liquidate itself and get paid out? Or is the tourism organization on the hook? Or how does that work? That was, that was a conscious decision that my board of directors made because I showed them the data about what could occur so it was more of an investment are you literally say are you literally saying the the greater right sorry the the, the the sorry the bay's regional office paid for the demolition well keep in mind that i still have my three county convention and visitor bureau offices sure so sure. What we use and and this really is a neat kind of structure because it it lets each of the kids I, I say it lets each of the kids keep their toys while joining together on the thing that benefits the overall umbrella. And so money comes into each individual convention and visitors bureau and I divide it into two pots. No less than 75% goes into marketing and sales. Okay. No more than 25% is held by that county office for tourism economic development projects. So this actually, that $1.2 million project actually got um, paid for out of the Saginaw County Convention and Visitors Bureau budget out of that first 25% because it was a Saginaw County economic development project. In Midland, we built and constructed um, our offices within a beautiful multi-use uh, facility and it's completely debt free. And in Bay County, um, we've been able to accomplish a number of projects out of that fund as well. Wow, I, this, this, the structure is great. Okay, so this kind of work, I, when you were talking about how you had changed structures and you were lobbying for a statewide um, opportunity for destinations to put forward destination development opportunities, I knew you weren't gonna have a, a non-working example. That's a great working example. That's fantastic. How many years in the works? Um, that one took me, it was really quite quick, actually. It only, from start to finish, it only took three years wow. So um, to get the money. Now, it took an additional year then once it was transferred back um, to the county and the Economic Development Office, um, along with the Dow Event Center, um, they took the next year to build it. So in total, four years to transform that parcel. Um, one of our other projects was to take our 16 contiguous soccer fields and expand them to 21 fields. Uh, we only invested a little better than $100,000 for that property hey, investment. Hang on. You're, you're not talking about 21 soccer fields in like touching each other, yes, in proximity. Contiguous. 
Yeah. It's ma- it's massive. Are you like the home of Michigan shop soccer or what? Well, I never put that title onto it, but I do think it's one of the top five soccer facilities in North America as far as size. So um, it allowed us to host the U.S. Region 2 soccer semifinal championships, which um, within two and a half, almost three years of that investment and the development of the fields, I had a direct spend of $12 million. So our $100,000 investment brought in direct spend of $12 million, and we've done it a few times since then. Okay, and and just to to underline all this, um, making the kind of alignment you did to get the physical project done, especially in the teardown, I I, I want a headshot for you for the the, uh, blog on this one. It's you in a yellow hard hat, and it's standing in front of either the demolition of the soccer field, and it says, you know, in Michigan, you could see our soccer complexes from space because that <laughs> because that is the marketing side of it, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. So I just want to underline this: none of the things you did were physically unidimensional. The idea of tearing down the building was about engaging a whole new opportunity, bringing new partners to the table, who, in their own right, would let literally bring the marketing to that place. And similarly on the soccer front, I know you're not heavily involved in in soccer propaganda, but you can bet that. Once you've got 21 fields, the word of mouth internally and externally in your region is crazy about soccer, right? You've, you've been following this distributed storytelling path for quite some time. Let's talk a little bit about your time in D-Next. There's an aha moment that happens for me in D-Next, right? Early beginnings is probably going back eight years in Cambridge. Paul and I are standing in a room and you're looking at the matrix. You say, you can't move up without moving, right? You can't, you can't increased destination strength without stakeholder engagement. And that was a real moment for me. You spent a lot of time literally traveling the world on D-Next. What are you seeing out there on that front? I'm seeing a lot of awareness of this. How are people putting it into practice now? What do you see from the Dr. Dr. Annie Rummel perspective? (laughs) Well, I I think that it's um, been completely embraced in North America. And um, just from my own personal use of it, I use it now as my benchmark to see if we're making progress and I keep the score in the forefront of my board of directors so that they understand that our focus has to be on community engagement and it has to be understanding what the residential fabric wants. We're consistently doing surveys of the residents. Uh, We just did another major survey uh, just to reinforce that we're still headed in the right direction and that, uh, you know, with society shifting and changing the way that it is, that we're still steering the course that the community wants. Um, our profile with our colleague uh, industries, we're in the travel sector. We have a very um, influential medical sector, manufacturing sector. Um, so this has elevated us to the point where, like, For example, Dow's World Headquarters is located in our region. They're using our marketing materials as talent attraction uh, mechanisms. So, um, and prior to us regionalizing, I don't know that that would have ever occurred. So, and that tells us that we're crossing over with our economic development offices. We have three of those and our county chamber of commerces. So we actually laid out a collaboration chart to say, what are the things that we do in our normal course of action that the chambers don't do 
or economic development doesn't do that we can say, you know, use our stuff. It's here for you. Don't duplicate payment for that kind of information. We'll share it with you. And by reaching over those boundaries, you're still respecting what their uh, course of action, what their purpose is supposed to be, but you're giving them a gift that you it doesn't cost you anything to give because it's something that you have to invest in in your normal course of action anyway. So be generous with that kind of material, and it helps um, that collaboration, and it helps your community engagement score go through the roof. So I've got some thoughts on that. One of them is this, being handed a regional office at some point to set up, and this most of them are happening in the late 90s, the early 2000s, the 2010s. We've seen experiments. Bank, uh, BC did a very robust experiment, started with 16. I think they're down to six regional offices. Ontario has 13. They're all functioning quite well, actually, and moving. But it was interesting for us. I think the regionality helped us because it made us not duplicating someone's brand. It has its own bunch of challenges, which is getting, you think it's hard to get one council in a room, try and get two councils in a room or three councils in a room up and down the river. That, that makes sense. Did regionality allow you to be a little more bold in the way you reached out? And the reason I ask is this, a lot of our DMO partners are on the cusp of real change. And you heard that at advocacy uh, a week ago. They really are. I see a lot of hesitation on how to reach out. And it's almost like, well, my phone calls generally are structured this way with these people. And it's really hard to reach across the desk to a city that may, you may well say the relationship's almost been hostile for X number of years. I think being regional gave you and I a break in that sense and that we were oddballs and we could go in. Reflection on being regional and how DMOs can use that thinking to sort of crack some of those eggs, to, to have some of those unusual meetings. Who are the unusual meetings? Who should they be? How do you get to them? Well, prior to regionalization, um, there was a stigma. Um, it was almost like having three children. And this is the way I looked at how do you create a regional organization? If you were trying to blend a family together, and that wasn't related in the past and actually was a little competitive with one another in the past. What's your first step? Well, your first step is to make sure that each of the individual kids feel like their things are going to stay their things and their toys are going to stay their toys. But what are the benefits of sharing? And so that was the story that we had to tell. Um, then when we went to our elected officials, we had to make some promises. We had to promise that we would eliminate duplication of effort. We would increase marketing um, and that we would be completely transparent with them. And um, that promise has been reported to them year, year after year. Um, and then once we were regionalized, it gave us enough of a budget to be able to say, hey, now we can sit at the table and we can contribute to you. And I didn't ask for anything from these other organizations. I just gave. And then I said, here's the direction we're going. Let me understand what your direction, what your goals and objectives are, because if I can align with you, that'll help both of us save resources. And so Again, I think the important part was that the, I, I made sure they knew I understood where the boundaries were between what my purpose is and what their purpose is. And then I'd give. And I didn't ask for anything in return. I just give. 
And what that did is it created a um, environment of trust. And then now I am just, we've given and given all these years. And now people are just giving back. These organizations are saying, hey, what can we do to help you? Or we're going here. Can we take you along with us? And so now it's getting returned and everybody is working together very, very uh, streamlined. And I, I think of the resources that were wasted prior to the regionalization effort and how we've been able to align those. Um, we've reduced overhead um, in the first five years, and I compared it every single year. Our overhead expenses dropped about 85% each year for the first three or four years. And then you'd see a little less when I invest in a big economic development project, but then we'd make up the ground the year or two after. So it's just been incredible. Well, and it is, I, I, I don't want to have a love, love in here on it, but RTL4 is working really well. And it has the same, I think we have very parallel approaches, which is take your resources and use them to enable people to build things that build on that investment. And it's a, it's a, it's a great, great place to be. Do you think, do you think having a horrible name helped? They used to go around the table at the Ontario Tourism Marketing Partnership and say, what's your region called? And someone go, oh, mine is cloud-based and someone else's. The heart of such and such, you know, and they go, "What's yours?" You go, "It's RTL4," and they go, "Oh, why that name?" You go, "That's a horrible name. No one's <laughs> ever going to think I'm trying to eat their lunch." It's people knew right away you weren't there to brand what they did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and they, and boy, did that definition of what a brand is ever evolve after that? Because then it became every operator's fingerprint. It became every little traction, every news story, and I think Jack's been sort of really educating us all on that for a decade. You know, the, the a destination's brand is now the sum total of the shared stories and experiences in any whichever form that are extant or circulating about that place. And I think I think you were a decade ahead of that, Annie Rummel. Well, I don't know about that. I've been very blessed and I pray a lot. So <laughs> I think the big guy has, <laughs> has uh, blessed me a lot. But um, we just worked together and when we came up with the Great Lakes Bay region, it was more on a global benefit level for the uh, economic development offices because they were in China, Europe. And when you say Michigan around the world, people have a pretty good sense of where the location is because of the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And so why not lead with your strongest suit internationally? Um, from a tourism perspective, uh, we actually lead with each of our individual communities. Um, we approach it like Kellogg's does with their cereals. Um, you have your various brands and your various personalities. Those are our cities at, with the Kellogg brand underneath. So we use the Great Lakes Bay Regional CBB as the underpinning and push the communities out and then show geographically how close the various attractions are to one another. And the Kellogg brand is a promise. It's a promise mm -hmm. of quality and delivery. I love it. Okay, um, we're, we're running long. Um, just final thoughts, important lessons. We're walking into another year of really high Delta change here. 2023 is not going to be any less impactful than 21 or 22. In fact, I'm, I'm gonna say the next two years, we're now dealing with the, the after effect of the pandemic. It's like being around after the uh, earthquake. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Your thoughts? That um, if I'm a destination marketing organization, that I have to understand that my role is also management of that, good stewardship of the destination, because I think um, 
there's a lot of emphasis on good stewardship. So to ensure you don't have over tourism, uh, we have a lot of different responsibilities now because we, we played a role during the pandemic and we need to continue to contribute to crisis management regardless of what that is. And we have to understand and define our roles in advance of anything happening. Um, so there's a lot of new skills that will be required of the CEOs as they lead their organizations in the future. So now is the time to do that kind of strategic planning, strategic thought, start to talk about, uh, talk to your board of directors about where you want the destination to go, talk to your residential fabric about what they want to see and what they don't want to see. And don't wait to ask permission, just do it. Annie, I love it. Thank you. And I'm going to just end on this. I do want to thank you for bring, being a broad thinker and innovator and a friend of the industry. I've always appreciated that. It's great to talk to you. And you know what? I ditto to you because, again, you were an example that I followed. Well, have a great day in Michigan. We'll talk again. You too, David. Bye-bye.